Now let's continue to worship by taking God's word and turning together to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. It won't come as any surprise to you to hear that uh, God is very concerned about what we believe. And equally true, he is very concerned about what we do with what we believe. And the Bible speaks to both, doesn't it? There are portions of Scripture that really emphasize, put the stress on what we believe. We would call that doctrine. Some of us had a little taste of that earlier in the adult Sunday school hour. There are other portions of Scripture where the emphasis is on what we do with what we believe. The book of 1 Corinthians is a case in point. There is doctrine in here. We'll see that when we get to chapter 15. He is going to belabor the doctrine of the resurrection. He's going to give a lot of time and attention to it. He's going to spill a lot of ink on that doctrine. But primarily, as we read 1 Corinthians, we're struck with this reality that what is foremost, front and center in the mind of the Apostle Paul is explaining what we are supposed to do with what we believe. And in particular, what we are supposed to do with the doctrine of union with Christ. Okay, we understand that we become one with the Lord Jesus through faith. And because we are one with him through faith, we are united to him in his death, his burial, his resurrection. This now shapes our identity. Paul is concerned with how that identity now dictates the manner in which we live. What we do with what we believe. And we certainly see this in the chapter before us. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul chiefly concerned with taking, yes, what we believe, good doctrine, sound doctrine, wholesome doctrine, and helping us to understand how it is to effect, impact, influence life. And so is it better for a Christian to get married or remain single? For most of us, that's too late. But it's an interesting question, nevertheless. Is it better for a Christian to get married or remain single? Is marriage a help or hindrance when it comes to growing in godliness? Does celibacy lead to a higher spiritual life? Is an unbelieving spouse a corrupting influence upon a believing spouse? Are there times when it is ill-advised to get married? Paul answers all of these questions in this chapter. He answers them again because he is seeking to build the bridge between what we believe, the content of our faith, and what we do with what we believe. And so follow along as I begin reading in verse 25, and we're going to go right through to the end of the chapter. Now concerning the betrothed, so those who are engaged in those days, please understand engagement was far more significant than it is today. People today get engaged, they grin like Cheshire cats, they put their status out there on Facebook, and yes, okay, there's an agreement, we're going to get married. In that day, no, it, it was legally binding. It was a legal engagement into which you were entering. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, 
but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. And those who mourn as they were not mourning. And those who rejoice as, those they, they, as though they were not rejoicing. And those who buy as though they had no goods. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The married man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then, he who marries his betrothed does well. And he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier. She remains as she is. And I think that I, too, have the Spirit of God. Well, I have a question or two. And I'm guessing you have a question or a hundred, as I have just read those verses for you. Here's the place to begin. Ricky's going to bring a slide up on the screen behind me. These four points correspond to the three blanks at the top of the sermon notes. A mistake on my part. Four points, but there are only three blanks. You're going to have to add a fourth. This is what we need to grasp then. As we set the context, okay, verses 25 through 40, a little convoluted, a little complicated. How am I going to make sense of this? Here's where we need to begin. Lay the groundwork for remarks, preliminary observations. Here's the first thing we need to grasp. Paul, as he writes, he addresses a problem. Okay, so there's a context. As we read 1 Corinthians, it's a little bit like putting together a jigsaw puzzle without the box cover. Can you imagine putting together a puzzle when you don't have the picture? It's a little bit like that. We don't know exactly what's going on in this church. We don't have all the facts of what's been said exactly or precisely what people believe. But there's something going on here. And Paul is evidently addressing a problem And clearly, as we read the chapter in its entirety, some have muddled notions about sex and marriage. That is readily apparent. Their confusion arises, firstly, from their adoption of dualism. Dualism is a philosophical system. And it basically says this, the material world is evil, it's filthy, it's icky, all the material stuff. The spiritual is good. 
And so if you want to be spiritual, well, then don't dabble in the material, something like getting married or celebrating the marital bed. That's not good. That's not going to do you any good. And so a lot of people in the church at Corinth are dualists. And because they're dualists, they have these there's muddled, muddled notions, concepts surrounding the marital bed and marriage. Secondly, they are preoccupied with status. This is a stratified church. This is a church in which there is a spiritual hierarchy. And they believe they're working their way up in terms of their status in Christ and their status in, their eyes, in the eyes of others. And this has corrupted just corrupted their understanding of the single life versus the married life. So let's be clear on it, all right? Paul is speaking to a problem. He's addressing something very specific in the church at Corinth. Secondly, Paul gives a command. Where is it? Verse 17 is where it is. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Paul is stating emphatically that there is no spiritual advantage or disadvantage in remaining single or in getting married. What matters is that we live out that calling to which God has appointed us and to which God has called us. And in living out that calling, we reflect our identity in Christ, what it means to be a Christian, and we do it for the glory of God. That's his command. Notice thirdly, he applies a principle. The principle is taken from his command. I have just stated it. And he then applies this principle from Chapter 7, verse 1, all the way through to the end, verse 40, he applies it to five different groups. We've considered the first four groups. The last group in our text, verses 25 through 40, are the betrothed. Who are these people? Look at verse 27. Are you bound to a wife? It's really, the same in the Greek, it's the same word for woman. I'm inclined to think... We should translate it, are you bound to a woman? In other words, are you engaged? Because the language he uses here for binding and for freeing isn't the normal language he uses for marriage. I think he's referring to legal engagement. And so are you bound to a woman? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a woman? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. So you're betrothed. If you marry, guess what? You haven't sinned. doesn't matter. If you choose not to marry, you haven't sinned. There is no spiritual advantage or disadvantage either way. This is not going to help you in terms of this spiritual hierarchy you've created there in the local church. This is not going to help your spiritual life. This isn't going to make you godlier or holier. He applies it to these five groups. And this is the fifth group now, the betrothed. The important point is this, whether you choose to marry or you don't choose to marry, that you glorify God in whatever calling he has appointed you to and called you to. The fourth preliminary remark. Paul issues a judgment in our section. 
Look at verse 25. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Now look at the, these are like two bookends. Verse 25, verse 40. Look at verse 40 now. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the spirit of God. And so he uses that expression, my judgment in verse 25. He uses the expression again, my judgment in verse 40. And these are the parentheses, the book ends around this section. And his essential point is this. While there isn't any spiritual advantage or disadvantage to remaining single or getting married, there are, in my judgment, other factors which come into play when choosing to marry or not. And you need to give great consideration, careful thought in particular to three weighty factors. And that's what we have in verses 25 through 40. All right. You got that so far? So here we go. Factor number one, worldly Troubles. Let me read the section again for you, beginning in 26. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a woman? Are you betrothed? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a woman? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles. And I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. And those who mourn as though they were not mourning. And those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. And those who buy as though they had no goods. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. Okay? This is the first weighty factor to take into consideration before you decide whether to marry or not. And we're labeling, labeling it worldly troubles. Where do I get that expression from? Right at the end of verse 28. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles and I would spare you that. So Paul is saying to them, I would spare you this, this burden. I would spare you these worldly troubles. Now, before you start thinking all negative like concerning marriage, before anybody yells out, amen, you better not. <laughs> what does he mean by worldly troubles? He is not speaking of the institution of marriage itself. Those who marry will have worldly troubles and I would spare you that. Paul, what do you mean? Look at what he says at the start of verse 29. This is what I mean. And he explains himself. All right. I'm going to take you by the hand. Firm grasp. Are you ready? We're going to walk through his explanation, what he means. And we're going to take three big steps. Step number one. All together. We, we need to grasp this. This is what he says. We are in the last days. Understand it. We are in the last days. Two phrases. 
The first at the outset of verse 29, note it. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. Phrase number two at the end of verse 31. For the present form of this world is passing away. Okay, Ricky, you can bring up the next slide now. And some of you have seen this before, and you're thinking to yourself, oh, I've seen this before. Steady. Others haven't seen it before. And even though you've seen it again, I dare say you probably need to see it again, yet again. Here it is. Here's my eschatology. There it is. I think there's a biblical eschatology right here. No complicated diagrams like some. I won't go down that road, but it's a very simple diagram as to how it all fits together and how it's all going to pan out, so to speak. You will notice top left in the expression present age, right? You will notice bottom right, the expression age to come. Used together, for example, in Ephesians 1.21 and used throughout Paul's epistles. On occasion, he refers to these two ages as night and day. For example, in Romans 13. And so the present age is the night. The night is passing away. The dawn is coming. What is it? It is the present age, the age to come, the light. All right? Two ages. All of human history divided into two simple ages. The present age and the age to come. When did the present age begin? Top left, way over there. The fall. That's when it began. And it continues until when? Christ's second coming. The age to come. Well, we think, okay, that's eternity. The eternal state. Yes, it is. The eternal state is about to break into time. But here's often where we get confused. The age to come began when? Doesn't begin at Christ's second advent. It began at his first advent. The age has dawned. Paul will write later in chapter 10, the end of the ages have come upon us. He's writing almost 2,000 years ago. The end of the ages have come upon us. And here's what we must understand as the church, the people of God. This is why the Christian life is such a tension. This is why the Christian life is so difficult. This is why we still encounter so many problems. Because we, as Christians, belong to the age to come. We're part of a new creation. We are now seated with Christ in the heavenly places. And we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. The problem is what? We belong to the age to come, but we're living where? We're still stuck. In the present age, the age to come inaugurated at Christ's first coming. It will be consummated at his second coming. There will be a resurrection of of the dead, the goats and the sheep, an eternal separation, a great judgment, and it will usher in the eternal state. That is our hope. That is what we're longing for. That is what we're praying for. And so at the end of this epistle, Paul's going to conclude it how? Oh, Lord, come. That's it. Oh, Lord, come. Because here are the people of God belonging to the age to come, which has already been initiated, inaugurated by Christ first coming into the world. 
And we are longing for that dawning, if you like, Christ's second advent, when the eternal state will break into time. And there will be a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Presently, therefore, the end of the ages have come upon us. We are in the last days. And we have been in the last days ever since Christ's first advent. And they continue until his second advent. Paul uses two phrases to describe these last days. What is the first? Right there in verse 29. The appointed time has grown very short. He's not speaking there of duration. He uses the term short in the sense of restricted or limited. His point is this, the time. Understand this, Corinthians. Understand this, Grace Community Church. The time between Christ's two advents is limited. It is restricted. There is an end point. It's coming. God has already determined it. And that's why Paul prays. I already cited it. There it is at the end of the epistle. Oh, Lord, come. The second phrase at the end of verse 31, the present form of this world is passing away. Again, he is describing these last days. This period of time, the end of the ages that has come upon us. And his point is this. We live between these two historical events, realities, Christ's first coming. And Christ's second coming. We are in the last age. And we've been in this last age ever since Christ came the first time. We are in the last age of human history. As the world now exists. Oh, Paul wants us to get this. I began saying what? At times the Bible emphasizes what we're supposed to believe. And at other times it emphasizes what we're supposed to do with what we believe, well, we can't act on this unless we get this and understand where we, where we are in terms of world history and understand God's plan of redemption and understand that the appointed time between Christ's advent is restricted, it's limited, it's going to end. And the present form of this world, the present age, it is going to pass away. That was the first step. All right, did anybody stumble? You still with me? Still got a hold of my hand? Here comes the second big step. We must live like we're in the last days. It's our identity. It's who we are. And so between those two phrases, again, sort of like bookends within the bookends, verses 29 through 31, the two phrases, this is what I mean, brothers, the appointed time has grown very short, Verse 31, for the present form of this world is passing away. In between these two phrases, then, he derives five illustrations from everyday life to show us what this means. And so what does he say? From now on, middle of verse 29, illustration number one, let those who have wives live as though they had none. Illustration number two, verse 30, those who mourn as though they were not mourning. Illustration three, from everyday life, those who rejoice as they, though they were not rejoicing. 
Same verse, illustration number four, those who buy, do business as though they had no goods. In verse 31, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. Now, just before you sell everything off, abandon all human contact and go off and live, I don't know, somewhere in Glenrose, Texas, <laughs> off in the woods somewhere, in the sticks, right? Steady on, steady on. Paul is speaking by way of hyperbole into a specific context in which he is dealing with a very real problem. Paul is not suggesting that we should suspend normal human activity. If he were, he would be contradicting what he has said in plenty of other places in Scripture. So he does not mean that we suspend normal human activity. What he means is simply this, that our priorities in these last days ought to reflect the reality that the appointed time, Christian, has grown very short and the present form of this world is passing away. He is not saying, don't marry, don't mourn, don't rejoice, don't buy, and don't deal with this world. No, it is hyperbole. He is saying, don't act as though these things are ultimate. Because they ain't. The form of this world is passing away. And the appointed time between these two advents has grown very short. He is saying this, do not cling to these things. Because these things are on the way out. And there is a new heaven. And a new earth coming. Are you ready for the third step? You can take that diagram away. We're finished with the slides for today. Thanks, Ricky. Here's the third step. Let me remind you of the first two. We're in the last days. We must live like we're in the last days. And now the third one. We might want to think twice, therefore, about getting married. That's what he says. We might want to think twice about getting married. He says in his epistle, second epistle to Timothy chapter three, he tells us, understand this, that in the last days, he's writing to those who are in the last days. We've been in the last days ever since Christ's first advent. Understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. And so this entire church era, 2000 years, is going to be marked by times of difficulty. Scripture speaks to this. It's going to be marked by trouble at times. It's going to be marked by tribulation. There's a biblical word at times. There are, in essence, in a word, in a nutshell, there are going to be bad times. There will also be good times. Plenty of time, good times. Proclamation of the gospel, advancement of the gospel, world missions, the church going forward. Yeah, sure. Nations affected and impacted by the gospel. Wonderful. There are going to be good times. There are going to be bad times in these last days. Paul speaks, therefore, to what? In verse 26, the present distress. I think that in view of the present distress, evidently the Corinthian church is going through what? A pretty bad time. As they find themselves in the last days, there are circumstances, prevailing circumstances, 
that lead Paul to conclude, look, this is a present distress. This is a present tribulation. What was it? We don't know. For certain, we can go back. We can read the history books. A number of scholars are convinced that it's a reference to the year 51 in the Roman Empire, a severe famine, the like of which they had never seen. And the social, political, and economic upheaval was unlike anything they had ever seen. And some suggest this is the present distress in the context of the last days, a bad time, a bad thing through which the Corinthian church was passing, which leads Paul, therefore, to conclude, look, I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. If you're married, that's great. If you're not married, you might want to think twice about it. It might not be the best time. These might not be the best conditions. These might not be the best circumstances. He says, if you marry, it will pose what? In verse 27, worldly troubles. It's the word tribulations. It will bring troubles, tribulations, not the institution of marriage itself. But because of this present distress in which you find yourself, because of this uh, time of difficulty in which, through which the church is passing, you might want to think twice about that. Admittedly, that is extremely difficult for us to grasp. Don't you agree? That is just not the world we live in. We have enjoyed peace and prosperity, generational peace and prosperity for so long now that the notion that there could ever be a time, a present distress afflicting the church to such a degree that it might actually be a good idea not to marry. Um, it's just not the world we live in. I mean, it's not inconceivable. I mean, there could be some sort of persecution. I mean, just look around the world at other places. There could be some sort of calamity, I suppose. Again, just look at world history, present day. But Paul's point is simply this. Yeah, marriage, good. Staying single, good. Please understand, there's no real spiritual advantage one to the other. There's no hierarchy here. Nothing inherently bad or good with either one. But here's something you might want to think about. In the present distress, you might want to think about staying single. Because if you marry, you are going to bring upon yourself such worldly troubles in the midst of these current situations and circumstances that my judgment, my thinking is this, that it is good for a person to remain as he is. Here's the second Second thing they need to take into consideration when it comes to marriage. That first one we belabor. The next two, I'm going to go through them quickly. Here we go. Number two, divided loyalties. So the second factor to take into consideration, the betrothed, when you're considering marriage, divided loyalties. Verses 32 through 35, hear them again. I want you to be free from anxieties. So he said earlier, I want you to be free from worldly troubles in the context of that present distress. Now he says, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. The married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. That is in all of life. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you. I've already established the fact that you can marry, not marry. It doesn't matter. Choose whichever you want, however God has called you. But, but here's just my, my, my thinking. 
I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. He uses that word anxiety, anxieties, anxious. We hear those words, how do we think? Immediately in terms of worrying, right? Uh, the Apostle Paul is not a Stoic. This isn't Stoicism, right? Stoicism was the search for apathia, apathy, indifference. Stoicism is the search for the life, hassle-free life, right? Without any of the obligations that come with commitments, without messy relationships, without deadlines. Oh, this is the good life. If I could just be free from all these stressors, And have an anxiety-free life. That's the pursuit of the stoic. Paul is not stoic. He's not taking us down that road. We all all feel the temptation and the draw of that at times, don't we? Once in a while I watch that show, The Last Alaskans. Ever seen that? About these six families who live in this, this area about the size of North Carolina in Alaska. Six families on this massive area. They're trappers. And I watch this and I sit there, the life they live, just the seclusion. And I think to myself, I could do that. (laughs) I could do that. That's the life right there. Nobody around, no hassles, no deadlines, just trapping animals, just a subsistence living, just trying to create basic things like fire. I mean, all that has worries and anxiety. I know I live in a delusional world while I watch it, but just humor me. We, We feel that draw, don't we, at times? The life of the stoic, if I could just be free of of the stressors in life, oh, how good it would be. That's not Paul's point here. He's using the word anxiety, anxious in a context. What is the context? He's referring to divided interests. Do you see that expression at the end of, at the start of verse 34? His interests are divided. And so he's making a comparison here. He's saying, look, you've got a married man. A married woman, their interests are divided. They're now, they're anxious about multiple things. They have to be concerned about multiple things. Yes, they're concerned about serving the Lord, but a lot of time now goes into that relationship. Uh, raising kids, ra- a household, everything like that, right? And, but the person who's single, the man who remains in a single state, uh, the woman, the betrothed who decides not to marry and she remains in a single state, well, she's free from those anxieties, those, those concerns, those commitments, those responsibilities that come with marriage and serving one another, which in and of themselves are good. He would never deny that. But uh, they're free from that. And they're able to give even greater devotion to the Lord and to serving the Lord. We think to ourselves when we hear that, we react against it and we think, well, hold on a second. Isn't marriage an act of devotion to the Lord? Paul would say yes. He's not denying that. Isn't marriage a means of pursuing holiness in body and spirit all of life? Yes, it is. Doesn't marriage cultivate growth and spiritual maturity and the cultivation of spiritual graces and lend itself to serving together, serving the church, thereby serving the Lord? Yes, yes, yes. His point is simply this. Before you get married, understand there are occasions when the single life is better. We don't think like that anymore. That's how Paul thinks. There are occasions when the single life is better. I can think of five women, 
four of them have entered into their reward. They are in glory now. Uh, all missionaries in Angola. Alice and I met at different points as we spent time in Africa. Single women called to an unbelievably hard place. Enduring hardship upon hardship and ministering in an unbelievably demanding context. Singlehood was God's appointment for them. It is what he had appointed for them. It is what he had called them to. He had remained with them in it. And they had, he had blessed those women in it. And they had been able to secure undivided devotion to the Lord in a context that necessitated it. Might not be my context. Isn't the context of most of us here. Oh, hang on a second. It might very well be the context of some here that what God has appointed for you and what God has called you to how God has gifted you a single life might be the means through which he has chosen to glorify himself in you through the undivided devotion in a particularly difficult context that calls for it whereby you are enabled and capacitated to glorify him. I can think of a young man, almost said his name. I'm glad I didn't. You wouldn't know him anyway. I taught him at college 15 years ago. Off he went to the Philippines, jungle work. I think he was maybe 28, 29 at the time, so he'd be in his 40s today, still single. For him, doing what he was called to do, undivided devotion to the Lord meant singlehood. For us, most of us, well, no, married life. Married life is the context in which we devote ourselves to the Lord and we serve the Lord by serving each other, giving ourselves away one to another, thereby ministering in the church, thereby serving the Lord, thereby glorifying God in the calling that he has appointed us to and called us to. But Paul's point is this. Hey, at least think about this before you get married as to what it is God has called you to and how it is, what it will mean, what it will look like. For you to render to him and secure your undivided devotion to him. Here's the third. Weighty. You're still with me. We don't usually talk about it like this way, do we? It's going to get better. I think it's going to get better anyway. Here's the third weighty argument that we need to consider. Strong passions. Verses 36 through 40. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. God has obviously confirmed his calling in your life and how he has gifted you. And singlehood is not how he has gifted you. Get married. It's good. There's nothing wrong with that. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having a desire under control. And so you perceive, well, this maybe is how God has gifted me and capacitated me and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed. He will do well. So then he who marries his betrothed does well. It's not the issue. Don't turn this into some sort of monastic isolationism. Don't adopt some sort of dualistic view of the universe. Don't fall into some peril of Gnosticism or some crazy ascetic thinking. No, he who marries his betrothed does well. And he who refrains from marriage will do even better. Maybe, as far as I'm concerned, he's speaking as a single man. The life he'd lived and the way he'd served the Lord. 
Please understand, God has gifted each of us differently, capacitated each of us differently, called us to different things, appointed us to different things. The issue is this. We must seek to glorify God in it, whatever he has called us to, by living out our identity in Christ. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord, a believer. Yet in my judgment, she's happier if she remains as she is, like me. That's my judgment. And I think that I too have the spirit of God. Okay, five takeaways. Are you ready? In five minutes, one per minute. Five takeaways. Number one. There's no spiritual advantage or disadvantage in remaining single or getting married. Are we clear on that much? He has made that point repeatedly. There's no spiritual hierarchy. He has made that point repeatedly throughout the seventh chapter. God has assigned us and called us to a life. There's no condition that makes us more spiritual. There's no condition that improves our status in Christ. We are in Christ. We are called to live out our identity in Christ by glorifying God in the life to which he has called us. That's the first takeaway. No spiritual advantage or disadvantage in remaining single or getting married. There is no spiritual hierarchy. Second takeaway. I hope that was just a minute. Number two. Devotion to the Lord drives our relational status. Devotion to the Lord drives our relational status. There is a good reason to remain single. It isn't so that we can do whatever we want. It isn't so that we can remain unattached and unobligated to anyone. It isn't so that we can wait for someone better to come along. It isn't so that we don't have to deal with someone else's messy problems. Now, here's a good reason for remaining single. So that we can serve God. According to how he has called us. And according to what he has appointed for us. Equally true. There's a good reason to get married. It isn't because we think the other person is going to complete us. If you're a fan of the Hallmark Channel, I need to completely deprogram you, and I do not have the time to do it this morning. But I hope you do not live in that world, anyway, of the Hallmark Channel. We don't get married because we think the other person is going to complete us. We don't get married because we're seeking personal bliss. We don't get married because we can't bear the thought of being alone. We don't get married because we feel that's what's expected of us. We get married so that we can serve God and give undivided devotion to the Lord. We should pursue being single, being married, whatever will promote our undivided attention to the Lord. If this isn't what drives our relationship status, we will compromise. And I could spell out a dozen ways in which that compromise might occur, but the time is moving. So number three, the third takeaway. There are times... And I hope someone yells out a hearty amen. There are times when it is better to be single than married. Anybody going to yell out amen? We don't think like that, folks. The Bible thinks like that. Apostle Paul certainly thinks like that. There are times when it is better to be single than married. We need to stop giving the impression that marriage is the only way a person can find happiness. And you stop giving the impression that a person cannot be complete without marriage. Lord Jesus was single. I think I'm correct to say he was complete. Right? So if, you're, if you are one of those who pities the unmarried, you need to stop that. You really do. Stop pitying the sing, those who are single. 
Stop thinking, oh, if only they could find someone, then they would be happy. No, that might, that might be very, that, that is unbiblical thinking. Uh, there is a stigma attached to singlehood in our day. But Paul makes it clear that singlehood is a valid option. As a matter of fact, when it comes to devotion to the Lord, it might be the best option. Depending on how God has gifted you. And depending on what he has appointed you for and called you to. Here's the fourth takeaway. It's important to make God glorifying decisions. That really comes out of that entire discussion of the last days. The appointed time has grown very short. The present form of this world is passing away. As Paul says in Romans 13, 12, the night, the night, this present age is far gone. The day is at hand. The age to come has dawned. It has been inaugurated. The end of the ages has come upon us. Therefore, the hour has come for you to wake up. Is what he says in Romans 13. Wake up from your sleep. Understand that the end of the ages has come upon you. And the appointed time has grown very short. Present form of this world is passing away. Oh, this ought to influence our decision making. What is really important in the grand scheme of things? What really matters? What will last? What will perish? What will secure our undivided devotion to the Lord? And the fifth takeaway, quickly, undivided devotion in our calling is the essence of the Christian life. Undivided devotion in our calling, whatever it is, and we're all different, is the essence of the Christian life. Here it is. We'll give Paul the concluding word. And if you've got nothing else out of 1 Corinthians 7, I do pray you've got this. The commandment in verse 17 only. Let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Our Heavenly Father, again, we pray that you give us wisdom for these things. We do thank you for calling us in Christ Jesus for bringing us out of darkness into light, for making us part of the new creation. We do thank you for the hope that is within us, the hope of a glorious resurrection and of our final redemption. And we pray that this hope might be fed and stirred daily by your word and that we might make this hope a present reality and live accordingly as you have deemed for us and decreed for our good and for your glory. In the name of the Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.